You're listening to the Film Fix Podcast, where film buffs get their fix. With your hosts, Jeff Marker and Jonathan Hickman. Jeff. Jonathan. Another week. <laughs> Here we are again. Yes, we are. We only do this once every two weeks because I come up to the university and teach my class. I got to talk to one of your classes today. That's right. Jonathan visited my uh, my seminar class this morning, or no, this afternoon. And about the time that I had him drain, he came in and re energize the room, which I appreciated. I had the coffee in full force and effect. I was, <laughs> I was jamming. So uh, we talked about errors and omissions insurance. We talked about everything that we're not going to talk about on the podcast that <laughs> is sufficiently boring. Uh, that other world that I play in, that is the law. So, so we've got some movies coming out this week. Uh, the Birth of a Nation is coming out, not the uh, the the D.W. Uh, Griffiths one, but the new one. And we also have a movie called Girl on a Train, uh, Gr- the Girl on the Train, with Emily Blunt. Tate Taylor, the guy who directed The Help, is directing this. Uh, I've seen both films. And Jeff, you're going to talk a little bit about the context that the title Birth of a Nation comes into because it's an appropriation of obviously an old title. Now, one thing about this that I want to point out is obviously birth, the birth of a nation or, or the, the original must have been before the MPAA because now, and you saw this with the butler, uh, Lee Daniels had to call his movie Lee Daniels the Butler right. because there was a film called The Butler uh, that was quite old but that the title had already been I guess approved by the MPAA now legally you really can't copyright a movie title any more than you can really copyright a plot so I guess there isn't any MPAA clarification or whatever for the birth of a nation. Well, this is a good place know. to start actually. Yeah. So, so th- cause that, that will let people know how far we are going to rewind when you talk about the original birth of a nation. And I have to say too, that, um, as, as someone who teaches film studies, there is no more difficult text that we have to teach. And I mean everything in that sentence, you can't ignore the birth of a nation because it is a bona fide landmark. So you have to cover it. And yet it is so difficult uh, to teach the thing, and hopefully by the end of this 15 or 20 minutes, everybody will sort of understand why that is. Um, so, this is a movie uh, directed by W.D. Griffith. It was released in 1915. Um, some, for, for many, many years, decades, in fact, people called this the first feature film. It is not, okay? There were others. There was a movie to Italy called Cabiria, and, and all these, you know, a handful of other things. But it is right at the point where we are moving out of an era when all that was made were one real long short so like uh, 12 to 15 minute uh, movies a couple people had dabbled in movies that were two reels of film long so you know uh, somewhere in the range of 30 minutes give or take you know and so Griffith was this outstanding uh, director of these uh, shorts he really he started to um, in some cases invent some uh, storytelling techniques but in most cases he took what some other people had done and figured out how to most effectively use it and so this is probably the best dramatic uh, director in the United States and one of the best in the world in the early teens so but we well, aren't and, in the th- and just to clarify about why these movies were short the whole idea of a movie or of a projected image was relatively new in 1915. I mean, it had been it's around about 20 some, years old. Some, some length. And so it was, and I'll, I'll speak legally, legally there was no copyright protection for movies and uh, that 
type of medium. The word motion picture, photo play, none of those things right, were right. Yeah, and so, law. Yeah. I mean, they, they considered it purely a, biz, a business. It was not a means of First Amendment speech or anything like that. That happened sometime later. And so when you look at what the whole industry was considered, it was more or less a business and an entertainment. And oh, so yeah. when they did these shorts, they, they were measuring the attention span and then also, you know, how many times could you run this thing and charge a nickel or whatever? Right. And so when you go to this longer format, people are sitting longer, you, you're, you're using the equipment for a longer period of time. So it was a complete sea change in how the business was done. It is, yeah. So, and that, and that's a fine point. When when a, with the owner of a movie theater rented a movie to show, uh, he rented it by the foot. They advertised the length in in film, uh, not in screen time, right. uh, and that's how they sold these things. And so they were like sausages, basically. You know, links links of chain, uh, uh, length of chain, I should say. And, and you see and, it carry and, over even today. And the thing, longer films sometimes struggle to make the movie that shorter film money that shorter films do. And right. so when you get to that three hour mark, there's really a stressor at in the theaters. So right. anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, it's okay because in the same year that this movie came out, there was the mutual uh, versus Ohio case that established that movies were not a form of uh, art. They were not a, a, and they did not fall under the First Amendment freedom of expression. Business only. That's exactly right. It was a business. So now you have D.W. Griffith who wants to do in the movies what great novelists do, which is tell a very elaborate story with a main plot and, and subplots and very rich, you know, characters and subtext and whatnot. And he chooses to adapt the novel uh, The Klansman, uh, you know, mistake one. Um, but he actually, so he had been working in a system that was dominated by uh, Edison, Biograph, and, and Vitagraph, and a handful of other companies. Hollywood didn't exist yet. There was no MPAA to be supported by Hollywood because everybody was on the East Coast at this point in the United States industry. That's how far back in the past we are here. So he broke away from that system that was in place, Edison and all the other uh, uh, companies, to make this feature film. And so it wasn't the first feature film, but the full cut of this movie is a little bit more than three hours long. It is an epic undertaking. And here's what's difficult about the film. So it's divided up into two parts. One is all about the war. So we're talking about the you know war between the southern states. And between the states. Yes. Between the states. I'm sorry, between the states. Sorry yeah, but, sorry for that. But there were Southerners that probably fought one another as well. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that was a slip of the tongue. Uh, and it the was first the part of Northern it, aggression, here, here's actually. the irony. Here's one of the ironies of, of Griffith's um, uh, movie. If he had stopped at part one, we would probably still, still hail it as one of the greatest war movies of all time. You know, there are racist undertones. There's definitely stereotypes, but it's not so vicious that it would have been rejected by American culture at a, at a certain point. He tells this great story, you know, I mean, like, and he keeps drawing on, he keeps drawing attention to the fact that he's consulting history books to, uh, and he's basing his representation of specific events like the burning of Atlanta and uh, Sherman's march and then later on uh, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. All these things are coming straight out of history books and sort of give the movie credibility and authenticity. And it's really, it's, it's a wonderful undertaking uh, in many ways during that first uh, part. 
And then the second part begins, and it's all about reconstruction. And this is when the racism stops being sort of um, implicit, implicit and subdued. Implicit, yeah. yes. And then it just becomes egregious and really vicious. I mean, I, I'll come back to that word because it's so mean-spirited and right. so derogatory. It's really still difficult uh, to, to believe that this was a movie that played widely. It was a huge event and those kinds of things. And so to give you some examples, you know, there's a there's a scholar named Donald Bogle who says, you know, every stereotype of African-Americans uh, appears in this movie. And I'm pretty sure he's right. You know, you have the Uncle Tom and the Mammy. All of the uh, uh, black children are treated like mindless little pickaninnies, you know. Uh, and then the worst one, even that, arguably. Even that word is uh, is derogatory. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah. I was told very, well, you, you're not supposed to say that, and I respect that. There are words we don't say, and, and we're going to get to the appropriation of the title here. Sure. And, uh, but you had some thoughts. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah. and the one thing I say about this is you're you're sort of drawing attention to why this is so difficult to teach. In the era of, you know, trigger warnings and those kinds of things, um, even discussing these things in a sort of neutral academic way. Yeah, all these kinds of things. <laughs> so just just to be crystal clear, I don't condone any of the representations in the 1915 Birth of a Nation of African Americans. It's absurd to think that anybody in their right mind would. Uh, remember, hmm. remember one of the reasons why Huckle, uh, Huckleberry Finn has a hard time uh, in libraries is because of the uh, use of the N word right. and uh, and certain characterizations and stereotypes. Right. So, uh, well, the difference is there's you know there are no sympathetic portrayals of. Uh, any non-white characters in Birth of a Nation, especially during Part Two, uh. because they also get into um, a stereotype that I won't I won't name, but it's the it's the uh, African American man with the uncontrollable lust for white women, uh, and it, it's arguable. Do, does he get the worst treatment, or does the worst treatment um, is the worst treatment treatment given to uh, the mulatto character? Because ultimately, Griffith's biggest problem is miscegenation. It's basically the root of all of the evil that was inflicted upon uh, the South, according to Birth of a Nation and D.W. Griffiths in this movie. So to give you an idea, too... Uh, and that's so interesting, because we're going to have this movie, Loving, that's coming out, uh, which uh, legalized interracial marriage. Right. And we're, we're really... Those anti-miscegenation laws were, were with us for years and years and years. Absolutely. And then we bring it forward, and then we have the anti-sodomy laws that were changed even up to 2003 with the uh, uh, the case that was not argued by Ted Cruz, even though he could have the uh, the Texas case. So anyway, I'm sorry. Go, go, go ahead. No, no. The you know the culmination, uh, the the climax of this movie um, uh, features members of the clan in full regalia riding in on a horseback to, to save, save the, day. the day. I mean, that's yep. what this movie is. And so and that's the image we see a lot from this movie. So imagine yeah. being at the front of the room as a, as an instructor, you know, talking about this movie, it's, it is difficult. Thankless task. It is also one of those things though. Um, I don't believe we should ignore such things in our past. We should break, you know, you know, approach them and, and face them uh, to fully understand uh, their their impact at the time and and so that we don't repeat those same, Absolutely. same things. Absolutely. That's the whole nature of studying the past and, right. and our, our cinematic historical record is important as well. Right. It's weird that he followed up the birth of a nation D.W. Griffiths did with a movie called Intolerance <laughs> and you know he focused on I guess misogyny in a way right? Is that sort of what he was focusing on in that film? 
Well, it's difficult to glean what he was focusing on, quite right. frankly. Intolerance was this uh, this very long uh, sort of experiment. Two, or, I'm sorry, four storylines um, that are only connected by a theme, you know, uh, and people just didn't know what to do with it. But that was supposed to sort of be his apology. One thing to make note of, even in 1915, when The Birth of a Nation was released, it caused riots. I mean, it, it was a very controversial film. And so it's not that sort of the country was in one place then and nobody really objected. Now we're in a different place. No, no, no. It was deemed racist by a lot of people then. And so just imagine uh, how it looks uh, to our 2016 uh, eyes. And so this thing is released. And it makes tons of money. There's a showing in the White House, which is maybe the most oh, embarrassing gosh. point at all. Um, but here's the, here's the, and so, so back to, uh, what Griffith does afterward. Yeah. So he becomes a bit of a pariah, um, immediately. Uh, it's, it's this sort of ironic situation where he hits the peak of his career and then the beginning of the decline starts almost at the, at the same time. And so he keeps having to, so nobody wants to be associated with him. So he makes intolerance, you know, it's supposed to be a way to answer for it. Unfortunately, it flopped. It's one of the historic, you know, uh, blockbusters right. that flopped in, in Hollywood history or uh, in, in uh, movie history. He makes another movie uh, later on called Broken Blossoms, which actually is a very well-made movie. It features Lillian Gish and an excellent um, who's also in the birth of a nation right yeah mm-hmm. so he she was part of his main troop sure. you know but you know he he's supposed to be showing uh, an asian american man in a sympathetic light and yet he calls him he, he casts uh, a white actor in yellow face and the only name they give the guy is the yellow man oh geez so even when griffith tried he failed miserably you and know? even though breakfast at tiffany's is one of my daughter's favorite movie uh, movies it does carry carry oh, that same stigma Mickey Rooney playing, isn't it Mickey Rooney? Yeah. yeah. Mickey Rooney playing basically yellow face. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. You know, and so we have bad examples of this. So, so, so here we are in 2016, and now someone has made a movie called The Birth of a Nation. The thing, one thing I want to point out is the original 1915 movie also provoked these um, uh, responses that Griffith didn't anticipate and certainly wouldn't have liked. This became a rallying cry for African Americans to have... A, a cinema that treated them more even-handedly and celebrated them rather than stereotyped them. And so uh, a couple of years after The Birth of a Nation came out, another movie came out called The Birth of a Race. Then it was supposed to be a response, a sort of uh, alternate telling of some of the same uh, history. And so this 2016 movie is not the first time that someone has sort of responded to the 1915 Birth of a Nation in some way. What I think, what I find brilliant about the 2016 movie is the okay. phrase "the birth of a nation" has meant one thing. I mean, it was even sort of it almost made me chuckle to hear you say, you know, I saw "Birth of a Nation" this week in the theaters, and I, I thought know. that's just bizarre <laughs> for someone who has lived with this this other uh, movie for so many years. But now, what Nate Parker and company are trying, one of the things that they're trying to do is change the associations you have with that particular title. It is brilliant. There is no question that uh, to appropriate the title is a brilliant move. In a way, it is cinema looking back on itself and saying, we're going to get it right this time. Unfortunately, we have all this negative baggage around this film, and it, it, it makes me increasingly uncomfortable every time I read something else that comes out in the 24-hour news cycle that we cannot judge the film purely on its merits. Right. And the, um, 
the the thing that I want viewers or re- listeners to know is that the birth of the nation 2016 is not as good a film as 12 years a slave but it is perhaps a more important film and it may be more important because of the appropriation of the title and of the unflinching look not only at the evils of slavery but at what has often never never been anything but glamorized depiction of the response of the slave to the mistreatment. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let the high praise of God be on the mouths of the saints and a two-edged sword in their hands to execute vengeance on the demonic nations and punishments on those peoples kings with chains. Dishonor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Sing to him a new song. It is, it is so unflinching and so violent and so disturbing that it's almost like you, you ask yourself, well, what is justice? What is, and I think that had Nate Parker not been so saddled with his own past yeah. that he could have gotten this message across through going on because originally when the movie sold at Sundance for $17.5 million it was an astounding amount of money it is. Yeah. and the movie is really not a big film it's, it has big moments but it's, it's manipulative it has uh, some of the, um, the trappings that have marked this type of cinema in that you can tell where there has been, there have been, and, and one of them is the fact that according to the open letter that the sister of the woman who was, uh, who claimed rape uh, right. by Nate uh, Parker, the sister, because the, the woman who, who apparently made the accusation uh, is no longer with us. She has passed away. She committed uh, suicide. She committed suicide. I'm trying to be delicate here because I don't know all the facts. Well, the facts aren't delicate. Facts are facts. Yeah, but, but, but there was a jury that did find Nate Parker not guilty. Right. And whether his conduct, and I have to say, when you're a young person, you make very gross errors in judgment. And there's no question that perhaps um, Nate Parker, I think he has said that this was a gross error in judgment. Whether it rose to the level of rape, a jury has has spoken on that issue. So as part of that record, I have to say a jury has spoken. Now, they did find the co-writer here, uh, I believe the story credit co-writer, Celestine, uh, they found him guilty, but then it was overturned on appeal. And as a criminal defense attorney, a jury's view of the world, as far as the case is concerned, is dictated by what is let in as evidence and what is excluded as evidence, and then how the evidence is presented, uh, the spin that it is put on the evidence. And we know this from the O.J. Simpson case, from all these, I mean, we have Making a Murderer. We know that there are injustices that have been committed in the courtroom because the facts are not presented in a way that could have been, could have gotten to the truth. And so we know that they overturn it, then the case has to be then retried. And it was never retried against the co-writer, I believe story credit writer here. And so there was a finding that he had committed the crime. Right. So it's worth pointing out, I think, though, this is also one of those cases where, I mean, some, some, 
legal decisions you read, and even if you read uh, the the judgment, or maybe even go into some of the evidence that is is released, some of the actual documents, it becomes clear that okay, this probably this person probably was actually exonerated for something that they didn't do. The what I've read of some of the original documents does not lead me to that. You know, so this is a this is a difficult one. It's I'm not an sh- ugly. It is ugly thing. Even if even if if he is not guilty of something, some of the things that were released are just really uh, uncomfortable. They're damning so, for other reasons too. So, and so now all this baggage is attached to this movie. And it's 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 so disturbing because this letter that the sister of the the woman who made the allegations says that one of the things that is not part of the historical record with regard to Nat. Turner, who is the character that is depicted, who is a real, who was a real person, right. that that he his wife was apparently it's not part of the historical record. Of course, there was a great amount of abuse against slaves in general, and women slaves certainly were raped, certainly were mistreated. Uh, there's no question; we can't deny that. But apparently, it's not part of the historical record with regard to Nat Turner, well, and the and movie with- leads you to believe that the rape of his wife is part of his motivation right. to then rise up. Right. And that's disturbing. Politically, it's also, I mean, the, 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 the woman's uh, sister made a great point in her letter. You know, that was not necessary no. to establish motivation for what he ended up doing, for, for a rebellion. And so to insert that in the movie, given his own past, yeah, this is, this is all very difficult. So we have all this baggage. <clears throat> the movie is, um, it opens uh, today. It's not tracking well. There, it, it's it it may end up being a terrible bomb, and I pointed out in your class uh, earlier that Twelve Years a Slave did not do well in this in this country. It did okay, it won the Oscar, but it did much better outside the United States, particularly in the UK. I suspect that The Birth of a Nation will have a similar course, hmm. and that's unfortunate because this movie needs to be seen, it needs to be experienced, and I watched this movie with virtually an all-African-American audience. And when certain things happen in the movie, I became very uncomfortable. Not because I thought I was going to be, you know, but I was, I was, I was genuinely disturbed by what I saw because right. it's a part of my history as a white person and, of course, the history of the other viewers who were, who were African-American. And it, it is... It is the kind of movie that needs to be seen, and it it has the message that I think we need. And so I say, the birth of a nation. You see that first, then you do. You have an intermission, then you watch Selma, and you see these two movies, and they show the evolution of the protest, the evolution of how things are done. We have riots right now. We have people that choose to, uh, you know, break windows and loot and that kind of thing. Then we have people who peacefully protest. And Martin Luther King, as we saw in Selma, was a human being. You see that Nate, that Nat Turner is a human being first, a a a revolutionary second. You are a child of God. You got purpose. The law put it there, and nobody can take it away. These books are for white folks. They're full of things your kind wouldn't understand. You're a special boy, Nathaniel. Study hard here. Your slaves sure do know how to behave. Well, they God, Finn. One of them's a preacher. 
people might pay good money to have them calm down a bit, especially by one of their own. I lead you to Peter 218. Submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. You also see that these are not perfect human beings. The uh, Birth of a Nation 2016 has Nat Turner, played by Nate Parker, as a very intelligent slave. Army Hammer is his slave master on a plantation. It's in the antebellum South, and Turner, he is used because he, he is given one book to read, and that is the Bible. And Penelope Ann Miller plays um, Army Hammer's mother, and Army Hammer's character's uh, father has passed away, and Penelope Ann Miller wants to help her, the slaves on her plantation, and if she sees one slave who, 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 has the, who, who they have determined has the ability to read, she's going to teach that slave to read. But then when times get tough, that slave has to pick cotton. And mm-hmm. we see that kind of thing going on. And so he's given one book, the Bible. He's, he's told that it's the best book ever written. And if you're a child and you're given the best book that's ever written, and a lot of people believe that, and I believe that it's a very, very important historical document as well as a a great religious text, just the same as the Torah and the Quran. But if you are given the Bible and you're told this is the greatest book ever written and you read it repeatedly because it's the only book you have, then you might in fact become a religious zealot. And that is sort of how this character evolves. He's not perfect. And then he is used by all the other slave owners to control the slaves with religion. Mm. And that is such an important point that we have not seen in other movies. And he does, and and Nate Parker, who plays Nat Turner, I know it's hard to get those Nate and Nat, does a a really good job with this because the speeches are clumsy, the quotations from the Bible are awkward, and you're not sure exactly how he is helping the slave owners. We've been good to you. My whole family has. And you go on and do something like this to me. A nigger baptizing a white man on my property. Do you know how this makes us look? This could ruin everything we worked for. Boy, you'd better say something and quick. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. He that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger. Beware of false prophets who come dressed in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. There's like a subtle revolution going on as the film sort of rolls along and the tension ticks up and then bam when all hell breaks loose it becomes a completely different movie Hmm. and a much more important film than what you saw earlier and so i think the criticisms of it'll be that it's a slow burn but when it finally takes off it really wows you but at the same time it is a little bit manipulative in that the way the events are compressed and the way things transpire is cinematic, right. a la, say, the manipulation of 
the original birth of a nation. Um, you get to the you get to these events in a very in a very quick way, and I I think that the that it works best when it takes a step back and makes Nat Turner reflect not only on his own Christianity but on his own uh, of people's origin from Africa. Right. There is this this thing that's going through the movie that's hinted at in these dream sequences, which I wish we had seen more of because it impacted me. And I came out and told you I thought it was one of the most dangerous films of the year. I texted right. you. And I still believe that. It's an incendiary picture. But if looked at in the right way, with through the right lens, this can be a significant first part of a two-part uh, double feature where Selma says this is how it had to be violence in in uh, the birth of a nation and this is how it is now mm-hmm. and that is the peaceful revolution and the using of the system in order to achieve social justice and change and I think that if you look at it that way you're fine but if you only look at it that well we're going to take a, uh, a hatchet to anyone who mistreats us then you're looking at it wrong and that's not the message that the film is trying to convey at all right so i wonder if that's if if, you know there are certain people who are going to see um any depiction of um black men uh engaging in violence or really any show of strength at all they're going to be threatened by that and I don't know that a movie like Birth of a Nation is going to change those minds, or if you're even going to draw those people in. Well, you, you um, made a good what you point. Can, what you we can maybe see is maybe this is, you know, uh, that's a film uh, maybe that speaks most strongly to uh, its own community. Well, and you which, made, which I find admirable. And Jeff, you made an excellent point when you said that. What we do now is look back at Birth of a Nation, we're embarrassed by it, and we look at it through the lens of today. Well, we have a movie called The Birth of a Nation 2016 made now, and we look at those events through our own lens. And so it's impossible. We talked about this with um, when we were talking about Oliver Stone and how he looks at the past. Um, the events and the way they are uh, depicted and interpreted is completely different depending on what era you're from. Right. And now we're looking back and we say, and so I look at it and I say, this is an anti-violence movie. This is this is not what should. This is not. But this is an understandable understandable response to an impossible situation. Well, to a situation that is incredibly violent to begin with. Yeah, oh gosh. The depictions of violence against slaves in this movie are horrifying and so uncomfortable you have to look away and there's no question there was rape but the fact that the movie had to manipulate the historical record and insert something that harkens... This is why it's difficult to separate the art from the artist. I mean, had no one ever pointed that out to me I would have probably, you know, thought nothing of it. Right. But, you know, so big fix rating for The Birth of a Nation. It isn't it isn't as well made a movie nor is it as as good, I think, a movie as 12 Years a Slave. So I don't think this wins the Oscar, but I haven't seen all the movies this year. Will it even be nominated at this point? Will anybody even see it? I mean, it's just Who wants uh, who wants to go to bat for a movie that has all of Nate Parker's 
in John uh, Celestan's baggage attached to it. I mean, are you because because rooting for the movie implicitly means you're rooting for these two? And Unfortunately, that is, yes. That is not. Yeah, it's <laughs> that's really not be a tenable position. It's this really year. a sad situation. Well, uh, the other thing is it's dour material. It's a little more upbeat and fun in places, if I can say that. That's kind of weird to say it's fun. But it works a little better cinematically as an entertaining kind of piece of cinema than 12 Years a Slave did. Right. I, I felt like it moved a little better than 12 Years a Slave, but I admired every frame of 12 Years a Slave. Well, that's what kept me watching with 12 Years a Slave. I mean, the, the artistry uh, on display basically in every moment was just kind of amazing. I mean, Steve McQueen is an amazing An filmmaker. amazing, and we, we just love, we, oh. remember when we reviewed Shame, he's just a, a phenomenal. I mean, the long takes, the way that they do it, the way that he, he, he is just, uh, he's gifted. This movie has a very strange color palette, The Birth of a Nation. It's very blue, and I don't know if that's the way it was projected, but the whole thing has a blue cast to it. Most of the trailers and publicity materials also have that hue that to blue, it. That yeah. blue hue, and I'm not sure why. I just why. think they desaturated it. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and it doesn't really look very uh, good. It doesn't look nearly as as, as good as uh, 12 Years a Slave is. It's not a handsome film. There are moments that are very, very good in terms of the way they're shot, but uh, I think it probably... It, it probably was all intentional. The blue hue is an intentional uh, color sure. that they chose. And there are there is some music in it that is of more of this era and not of that era that's used. Strange Fruit is used, which is fine. I, I mean, I, I did, didn't take me out of the picture. Right. So, so big fix rating for The Birth of a Nation. Next film uh, is The Girl on the Train. Didn't read this book. Did you read this book? I haven't read this one. I used to watch this perfect couple. They were the embodiment of true love. I want to start my life over again. I saw her. I saw her from the train. It is by Paula Hawkins. It's a novel of the same name, directed by Tate Taylor, who uh, gave us the help. These kind of movies work. You remember that was it Adrian Lane? Is it Adrian Lane? Adrian Lynn? Adrian uh, Line? Line. Line. I, I couldn't. I can't remember it. Remember, did he? Was he the one that did that movie Unfaithful? Was that an Adrian Line? Yes, it was. Okay. Well. Unfaithful is the movie you ought to go see. You know, you got to rent Unfaithful. <laughs> the girl on the train isn't Unfaithful, and then it, it's not Gone Girl either. And yeah. Did you like Gone Girl? Yeah, yeah, I like the yeah. the book and the movie. I couldn't get my wife into Gone Girl. It was it was like that. That's real. It tough. was impeccable trash. I mean, it's basically that's what you need to how you need to approach that. I mean, this is pulp. Yeah, but you it was know. artfully done. Sure. And, and that kind of caused it to be a little slow. And it was tough. Like, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is the same. The remake by uh, Fincher. I, I liked more of the pulpy uh, pacing of the original series of films right. that uh, got ever more pulpy as they made the last two. As did the books. As did the books. The Girl on the Train is not a good film. <laughs> Okay. And I think that that's a safe way of putting it because there are parts of it that are good. Uh, Emily Blunt is certainly up to the task. She is 
very she's never sexy at all in this movie which is kind of hard to do she is very dowdy very drunk most of the film because she plays an alcoholic she is not got it together in the least you can almost see and you do you can see the grime under her fingernails and she wears her little her little business suits and she wanders around in the woods I'm here because I because I because I woke up um, covered in blood and I had I had bruises all over my arm and um, it's usually from when I've fallen and someone's helped me up. My husband, he used to tell me what I'd done the night before. And I learned when you wake up like that, you just say you're sorry. You just say you're sorry for what you did and you're sorry for who you are. And you're never gonna do it again. But you do, you do it again. It's a, it's 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 like a, it's like a. She's wearing her little her little uh, half heels and walking in the mud, you know. And that's really what this movie is about. It's about going through the dark underbelly of suburban relationships and knowing that that no matter how good things look on the outside, they are never as good as they appear. Uh, this movie plays with time and plays with relationships. So Emily Blunt is uh, is a divorcee, and she is riding a train back and forth between Manhattan and I guess another part. And she keeps and the train kind of stops behind this series of nice houses in suburbia, where she's able to observe from the train the lives of those people in the houses. One of the houses is uh, inhabited by her ex-husband and his new wife, who in fact was cheating with her ex-husband uh, at the time that they parted. So this is the other woman. Oh. And they now have a new baby, and it's everything that Emily Blunt could not have, Emily Blunt's character could not have. It's, it's uh, a child because she was incapable of having children. It is the happiness and the love that she never felt. Mm -hmm. um, but a few houses down is another couple, a young, younger, uh, very sexy couple who are very much into, uh, vo well, she's the voyeur, but they are into display, outward displays of sexuality. And she's able to observe them like getting it on in the kitchen from the train. She, she literally <laughs> lives on the train while she's sipping uh, vodka through a little sippy cup. And I think that part of what she is seeing is not reality. But the film never lets go of the concrete part of this. We are supposed to, I guess, expect. And one of the characters is a police detective, and she says, oh, yeah, right, like you saw all of this from the train. You see what I mean? Right. I saw someone with Megan Hipwell, but uh, not on Friday night. She she was having an affair. She had a lover. That's that's what I'm trying to tell you. I thought you. you didn't know her. No, but I, but I saw her. You saw her where? I, I saw her from the train. She was standing on, on the deck with this with man. Her husband, Scott Hipwell? No, it wasn't him. This man was different, and they, they, were, they were kissing. Wow, that's pretty coincidental, isn't it? You just happen to be on a train at the same exact moment that a woman you don't know but somehow recognize is cheating on her husband? We're supposed to think that maybe, I think, 
that if the movie were, were have been were, were would have been a bit cl- more clever, it would have played around with her sense of reality, and maybe it does, and that's just too subtle for me to pick up. But you know, we she sees all these things. Eventually, uh, one of the the characters disappears and then is found murdered, mm. and so she is somewhat implicated in the murder. But because of her high level of alcoholic uh, alcoholism and her tendency to black out during her periods of uh, great inebriation, she is not uh, trusting of her own memory, which is another interesting part of the movie. Having imbibed greatly in the past to the point of uh, not necessarily, I've never blacked out, but I can tell you that there are moments that are a bit fuzzy. Uh, I, I understand the idea of not trusting your own memory. Even when completely sober, I sometimes don't trust my own memory. And, right. and in the law, the concept of the eyewitness is something that we uh, often test because people don't remember things like colors, heights, distances. Right. They usually get those things wrong, and uh, timing is, is also a problem. Sometimes they can even get the color of the person they're looking at right. uh, wrong, or the gender. I mean, these days it's even ever more difficult. It's more imagination to, yeah. than memory. And so I think that the, there are nuggets in this movie that make you go, okay, or hmm, yeah, that might be interesting, but they never follow through on it. And then it plays with narrative structure. And I understand this is part of the book probably where you get this uh, sort of this Rashomon perspective attempt. And that's, uh, and I, I need to mention Birth of a Nation one more time about this, but the idea of perspective, you see her, you see Emily Blunt's character's perspective from the train looking at these people. Then you see the perspective of the sexy young girl who's married to the uh, the sexy guy uh, a few houses down from where she used to live, Emily Blunt used to live. You see her perspective. Then you see the young mother's perspective who's married to Emily Blunt's ex-husband. And so you're seeing these three women and their perspectives and yet at the same time it's not only just their perspective but you're seeing their perspective during different time periods. The movie jumps around in time and instead of telling us that this is the present, it says this is today and this is three (laughs) weeks ago and this is a month ago and this is six months ago. It, It gets so convoluted that it makes it difficult to take care of, to understand. I lie to Scott. I lie to you. I mean, I know that's not the point of therapy, keep things vague, jumble up all the men, the exes, the lovers. It doesn't matter who they are, it matters how they make me feel. Lying is like taking a trip. It's like having a secret that no one else knows. Unfortunately, this movie is more frustrating than thrilling and more obvious than mysterious. And that's unfortunate because as as hard as it's working with its structure, it is also working within an overly simplistic storyline, which even though there are many characters in it, the simplest explanation is probably going to answer the mystery <laughs> and that's spoil. unfortunate and well people have read the book they already know it because it's a bestseller but I'm not going to reveal it it's not clever enough and I think you're frustrated that, by it yeah I, I was more frustrated I was sitting there literally frustrated and not thrilled right but I was still and, and also it is a sloth-like pace early on 
and I think that's uh, to say it's slow. It just feels like some of the conversations are just so baggy <laughs> and some of the dialogue is so overt like oh well you know now I'm going to do this you know a little ex- ex- exposition instead of actually showing us those things right so uh, not a fixed rating for the girl on a, on the train unfortunately well that is unfortunate they spent a lot of money on the marketing for that movie gosh you know what it'll make money because birth of a nation birth of a nation is not going to make money mm. so i would suspect it'll have a big weekend it is not gone girl it doesn't do anything more you know the criticism of emily blunt was is she too tough for this role because Emily Blunt, you know, in Edge of Tomorrow right. was fantastic. She 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 was great. Uh, she she's she's great in this film. And I find that complaint funny because before Edge of Tomorrow, no one thought of her in that way. You know, I guess between Edge of Tomorrow and Sicario, Sicario, right? of course, yeah. uh, she's yeah. even so she tougher. Can be tough. I say uh, one of the performances in the film that I really like is Allison Janney. She is the police detective, and it's almost like she is the one real person in the movie because she looks at these people and she just thinks they're ridiculous. And that is sort of mirroring my own response to the movie. I thought, well, you know, why is this an important story? And opening off opposite The Birth of a Nation, you go, well, why should, why is this story so important? It's a little bit of suburban angst with some intrigue thrown in and some pointless murder thrown on top of it. Now, perspective. The Birth of a Nation is almost wholly the perspective of Nat Turner. Uh-huh. And that's important because it gets inside of his head and makes us feel as angry and as, uh, I want to use frustrated, but he, 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 is, he is enraged. And I think it's very effective in yeah. that. So um, Breath of a Nation is going to be released on 2,100 screens compared to The Girl in the Train's 3,100. And then the only other sort of major release is Middle School, The Worst Years of My Life, a Lionsgate right. picture that's coming right. out with 2,800 screens. Right. So no, The Girl on the Train is positioned to do pretty well. Yeah, I think I think it's going to be a big weekend for Girl on the Train, and uh, part of it is the demographic that it hits. I have no doubt that if you are a woman and you're watching this film, you're going to have a much different reaction than I am, uh, you know, as a man. Also, there are parts of the movie that had me thinking about my own relationship, uh, had me thinking a little bit more about being a little more kind and not, you know, when you, harsh words are also a form of abuse, and that movie does sort of talk about that, but then you have the the graphic displays of violence against women, and to a certain extent some, well, yes, some outright misogyny as depicted in The Birth of a Nation. I think that women are going to go see The Girl on the Train. I think it's a big, it's going to be a big women woman hit. Do you think that's going to be a bigger draw than The Birth of a Nation for African-American women? It's hard to say. Uh, the with problem the, with the baggage, right? Yeah, the baggage. So, so if, I mean, you're, even if Gabriel you're that demographic, Union, uh, Gabriel Union wrote a letter where she described a rape. She was raped, apparently, in the back of a Payless uh, store that she worked at when she was very young. She is, in her letter at least, it was a mixed response to how she is viewing the movie now right. and the material because part of her character was she was drawn to the movie because of that part of the movie and she is she she is not the wife here i don't believe she is the wife of another character i just i i just think it's going to be very a very tough sell this weekend yeah. and i understand it it's it's, a, it's an unfortunate thing because the movie is is so important also um last week i interviewed atlanta's own mark ashworth 
you know, the former bricklayer from Tennessee who is now an actor and had a significant role in The Magnificent Seven. And he uh, sat down with me, well, by email, but I've sat down with Mark on, on in the past and he had a drink. He appeared on our show, you know, a few years ago. So I've met him that one time and instantly liked him. So yeah, he's I, so likable. I, I wish him well. And he talks about balancing family and being an actor and how he was able to have his young daughter on the set of The Magnificent Seven, at least thereabouts around the set, and that he was able to see her crawl and take her first steps, actually stand and take her first steps uh, while on a movie set. Wow. So even though she was oblivious to what was going on, <laughs> it's, a, it's a story that I, no doubt will be a part of her history uh, as, she, uh, as she moves forward. So that's a neat interview. It's on timesherald.com under the Weekender section. And uh, Mark is available. If you're a filmmaker out there looking for a good actor, uh, he can do just about anything. Uh, you know, it's interesting, too. Here's a guy who, 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 is, who, who could be, he plays a preacher in The Magnificent Seven. He also has certain leading man qualities as well. He can do accents. So uh, we're very lucky to have him in Atlanta. And he is available. He does small pictures all the time. So I, I definitely would promote Mark. I also want to want to say that if you are an actor or if you are a producer and you want to uh, talk about your project, I have told Mark this as well. Uh, certainly drop us a line. You can uh, email me through filmproductionlaw.com or you can uh, just get in touch with me through the newspaper timesherald.com. We can set up an interview and see if uh, it's something that the paper would be interested in. So I guess that's it for this week, Jeff. Uh, Anything else you want to talk about? So many things. Yeah, I was happy that we just went uh, for as long as we did, and we didn't have to talk about the uh, political campaign. Oh, yes. Sign off before we start. Yep. Uh, you know. So what? hopefully, we provided you a little respite from from this wretched campaign. Till next time, I'm Jonathan W. Hickman. Jeff Marker here, and you've been listening to the Film Fix, where film buffs get their fix.